Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, the Canada Research Chair on Gender, Security and the Armed Forces at Queen's University and Director of the Centre for International and Defense Policy. And I'm Steve Sademan. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University's Norman Patterson School of International Affairs. And I'm also the Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. So please join us every two weeks for a new episode. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located on unceded Algonquin territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Today on Battle Rhythm, we have a guest host, Erin Gibbs von Brunschott. She is a professor at Calgary, and I'd like for her to introduce herself to our audience. Hi, everybody. My name is Erin Gibbs von Brunschott, as Steve just said. I am the director at the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies. I've been doing that job for about three years uh, in July, taking over from David Berkison, who is the founding director of CMSS. And I'm a sociologist by trade who focuses mostly on crime and high-risk offenders at this particular point. High-risk offenders? What are mm-hmm. those? Those are the worst of the worst, unfortunately. They are kind of like the extreme end of a continuum of criminal behavior. And they, they can be either formally designated as high-risk by, by the courts, or they can be identified or flagged in some way by the police as potentially problematic. So, we have those in Canada. I thought Canada was a happy place where we had no crime. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's mostly happy, but there's uh, there are those few out there that get special surveillance and special special attention by the authorities. Okay. Since our last episode of Battle Rhythm, the Arbor Report dropped, and there were many recommendations, forty eight, and I'm still about halfway through the document. But something came up over the course of the past two weeks in relation to that, which was there was a news story about how one of the initial recommendations that Arbor recommended and then Anand was said to have implemented last fall hasn't really turned out the way we expected, which is one of the recommendations was to move the the prosecution and investigation of sexual misconduct out of the military into the civilian sector. And it turns out the civilians who are being asked to do this aren't that thrilled about it, that they're actually, many of these cops and prosecutors are, are turning down this new responsibility. As someone who studies policing, what is your take on this, Erin? I can't really blame them for wanting not to have to take over these sorts of cases. I think part of the reason that they would be hesitant, although I'm not sure ultimately that they have a choice, but they may be hesitant because there is not a lot of success necessarily in the ways in which sexual assault cases go before the courts uh, in the civilian world. So what I mean by that is there is, uh, as we know, there's a huge number of unreported sexual assaults. So there's a a lot that isn't dealt with, but even of those cases that do come to police attention, well, very rarely do those cases actually result in convictions. So one of the the stats that we have is that only one in 10 reported sexual assaults actually result in convictions. So there's a lot of work involved in processing and looking at sexual assault. So I think probably the hesitation is simply that This is potentially more added work to a system that's already stressed and strapped anyway. So I think that could be where the hesitation is. Okay. And the the interesting thing is that I guess 
you know, again, all the stuff is uh, provincial and municipal and may require the CAF and D&D and the federal government to negotiate with every province about this. They just can't simply drop them in their laps. Yeah, the, uh, that's a little bit confusing to me in some ways. You know, if you, so for example, uh, as um, an academic or at the university, if somebody reports a sexual assault to us, we don't take it to, well, we would probably at least notify the authorities within our institution, but we would definitely be suggesting that those people go directly to the police and report their experience there. So I, I don't really understand what the difficulty would be within the context of the military. If you hear of a sexual assault and advise that person to take it out, outside, I, I don't know how that necessarily differs from any other institution. Well, what happened was apparently in 1998, there was a change in legislation where those cases would be handled by with by the military judicial system. As I read the report, it seemed as if that they, they thought that was a good idea that would lead to better discipline within the military. But it turns out the, it, it's hard enough to try sexual assault cases where there is not a whole lot of hierarchy attached to it. And then once you keep it in-house in the same culture, in the same institutions, and have a whole lot of a hierarchy attached to it, it works even worse. So the experiment over the past 24 years, I guess, of having it be those cases being handled strictly within the military has not worked out too well. And so the idea is to, in some ways, go back to the status quo ante, which is to have these, you know, if there's sexual assault, it's handled by the civilian. So the military is a funky organization where they end up controlling people's lives in much more ways than our, our universities in terms of how they, they influence us. Mm -hmm. So they did have this process, but it hasn't worked out well. And while it's seen that the prosecution, investigation, handling of sexual assault and other sexual misconduct within the civilian sphere isn't good, isn't where it should be, it's worse within the military. That That's the general sense of the report. And as a result, the idea is to return to the civilians where at least you wouldn't have all this chain of command stuff involved because in the people who handle this stuff on any military base is ultimately the commanding officer, but the commanding officer may have relationships too, or may be the perpetrator. It's definitely tricky, but I think they are realizing that there, there has to be an external or an independent sort of process that, that is associated with this because of those relationships, specifically because perpetrators and victims are involved in a structure that's a hierarchical structure. I think the only way that they can actually manage that relationship is to externally deal with it. And then therefore the military will not be accused of sort of role integration there because of the, of the fact that they would then be investigator, you know, punisher, all of that sort of thing within or in-house. I think the only way they can actually build trust in terms of their members is to take these situations outside and, and have them externally adjudicated so that there isn't that role conflict and um, at least the perception and the, and the reality of rule separation in terms of investigation and punishment. And the, the question I have is one of the things we learned with a convoy mm -hmm. in February and at other events in Canada over the past year is the civilian authorities, that is the mayors, city councils, premiers, have very little ability to tell police and prosecutors what to do. And... The, the, this was very striking to me as from, I mean, from the American tradition, where there's there's a little more directive uh, relationship between, you know, mayors and governors and state and local police forces. 
Mm-hmm. And so when I saw this news story, I thought about actually can the cops prosecutors just basically do whatever the hell they want and not really cover, you know, they may be asked to investigate these kinds of crimes or to prosecute these kinds of crimes, but they could just refuse. I mean, that's that's sort of the gist I got out of the story. They could just say, no, you can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to do this. It's more work, even though there's actually not that many cases per year coming out of the calf. So it's not like it, it's going to dramatically affect the caseloads. It's, you know, if you're in Ontario, it's a drop in the bucket compared to the cases they're already getting. And the same, the same is true for the other provinces. It's, it's really not a major additional workload, but anybody wants less work and they don't want the, compl- the complications of having to deal with the folks on military bases. So I get why they might want to say no, mm-hmm. but I guess one of the bigger questions is how do you induce these people to say yes? Is there an ability to get them to do what they don't want to do? Who has power over police forces and prosecutors to do this kind of thing if they don't want to do it? I'd be surprised if they actually have the ability to say no, because I think there's that notion of abrogation of duty that you, you know, the police act specifies that, you know, I don't know exactly what it says, but there, you know, the jurisdiction is national. And therefore, I don't think if uh, an incident comes to your attention that, that you can just, it's not really turning a blind eye, but that you can afford or that you have that ability to ignore it ultimately. I thought that also, Steve, you might be able to clarify this for me. And I thought that report or the decision in 1998 suggested that there was, that they could keep it, keep these sorts of incidents in-house or that they could give them to the civil police. Is that your understanding, but that the choice had been made that they were going to keep these things in-house? Because the Arbor report suggests to me that what I've read recently is that there had been a choice, but they decided to keep these things in-house and now want, and she's recommending in the Arbor report that these are externally adjudicated. That's right. That that had been in-house. They thought that that was a better way of doing it. Now they're going to try to get others to do it. One of the things that I was struck by in the conversations while Arbor was doing the consultations was all this discussion of doing things with independent folks. Right. You know, do we make the sexual misconduct reporting centers independent? Do we have an independent inspector general? Do we have an independent ombudsman? And the thing is, as Arbor knows the report, independent, you got to ask from what, from whom, because they can't actually be completely freely floating and not report to anybody whatsoever. But at least in my observation of the cops in Canada the past year, they kind of are truly independent, which is they can do whatever the hell they want uh, and they can choose not to, to do stuff if they don't want to do stuff. You're basing that on your experience in Ottawa? Basing that mostly on my experience in Ottawa uh, in February, but also other discussions about other criminal issues over the past year where mayors and governors can't direct police to particular investigations. Mm-hmm. They can try to create larger policy guidance, but the choices of who to investigate, and I guess even the choice of who to prosecute, are left in the hands of cops and prosecutors. And I, I understand that the idea is you don't want to politicize policing, right. but policing is inherently political whether politicians are involved in it or not that cops are always making choices about which crimes to investigate, which crimes to pursue, which criminals to pursue. They don't have the resources to do everything, so they make choices. And Mm -hmm. so it is political whether the politicians are involved in it or not. Mm -hmm. And so it seems to me that if you just say, well, it's all the cops' decisions and we don't have anything to do with it, it's an abdication of responsibility because the cops aren't elected. How do we Mm -hmm. hold them to account? So how do we make sure that they're doing their jobs? And I was very struck, obviously, during the February convoy mess, that the cops didn't seem to be all that interested in doing what the civilians wanted them to do. Yeah, the uh, the the February incident is very 
interesting in terms of the sort of multiple jurisdictions that applied to that particular Mm -hmm. incident. So it seems like when I, I always look at policing as a bit of a Venn diagram and you have these overlapping circles, but then sometimes when the circles overlap, then neither party does anything because they're waiting for the other party. And then you wind up in a sort of a bit of a stalemate. Just to comment on your observation about the police and political decisions, I think one of the the obvious sort of examples of that is just looking at police deployment within municipalities. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear about how certain areas of the city have greater crime rates, but of course you have a greater crime rate when you send more police to capture or to hear the reports of the individuals in that community. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, you're definitely right that there's um, a political aspect to policing. I just don't know in this if this is uh, something that comes down, you know, from the higher ups in government if they're going to have a choice with regard to determining or saying yes or no to this. It's just whether or not it becomes a priority in their claims to be overworked and underpaid at this point. If it, if it's going to result in the in the uh, sort of positive outcomes that Arbor has articulated. Well, let's move on to our next topic that the federal government has decided to essentially ban the sale or transfer of handguns, uh, which is, of course, leading to everybody trying to buy up their guns right now before the ban kicks in. What do you make of this move of this this gun control? Is there a handgun problem in Canada? Is this going to solve our handgun problem? I think there actually is a handgun problem in Canada. And I know that advocates, those who are in favor of guns and handguns might argue against this. The statistics do show that there is an increasing use of handguns in the commission of crime across Canada, despite the fact that overall, actually, some of the uh, serious crime incidents have gone down over the past few years. But there's definitely more and greater use of handguns in criminal contexts. So I think that this is... In some ways, it might be a bit reactionary by the government in the face of the uh, appalling incidents that we've seen in the U.S. But on the other hand, it's it's difficult for me to accept the argument that we actually do need more handguns in Canada. So this is putting a freeze essentially on, you know, the uh, buying, selling, importation and transportation of handguns. And and I don't think that's a bad thing because I don't think we need more handguns in circulation. So it's not going to address the criminal element because it is true that this is, again, looking at those who do go to, to the extent and do things properly. They buy and sell properly you know, they import properly. So a lot of the guns that are used in crime are not necessarily going to be impacted by this. But I think the whole idea to get less guns in circulation in total is smart and makes sense. Okay. I am not gun control savvy in this country. I spent some time in the United States observing that debate, which has gone awry in so many different ways. It's interesting, though, because uh, this might end up being a sore spot with the Americans because the American, there's some crazy, crazy American Republicans who are already upset about our restrictions of freedoms by regulating gatherings during the pandemic. And so maybe they're going to add this to their list now that we're infringing on Canadians' freedom to buy guns from Americans. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, what they do down there really does kind of impact what goes on in Canada because a lot of the guns apparently are illegal guns and legal guns come to Canada from the U.S. So, you know, it'd be nice to think that the border actually separates us in some ways, but it really doesn't. It's just a, you know, a gateway for many illegal weapons and legal as well. So the more guns there are in the U.S., the more it could potentially impact, at least indirectly, all of us in Canada. And that's a good segue for our third topic of more guns, which is last week, 
was the CanSec convention where the defense contractors show off their wares. And it made the news because, well, for a variety of reasons, but including protests. When you were following this, what reactions did you have to this, Aaron? Well, I think protesting is a good thing and it's a public good in many ways, because I think what happens without protesters is you have people, perhaps those attending this type of convention, you know, talking to each other in a bit of an echo chamber, because clearly industry and government are co participants in this convention and to have those protesters, whether they're effective or not is another question, but having them outside the doors, you know, presenting an alternative view of what's going on, I think is positive. So if it makes somebody reflect for five seconds before they go into that, that their opinion isn't the only opinion that's out there, I think that that's a a positive thing. Because I think having taken a look at what was going on at that convention, you, you see no academics, it's government and industry together. So the perception is not necessarily inviting for alternative mm-hmm. perspectives. So I think they at least draw your attention to the fact that there's another opinion out there. Yeah. Well, as we were preparing for this segment, I, I was struck by the difference between a conf- convention and a conference. Exactly. Uh, that this is not the CDI conference or the, or a CGI conference where you try to bring together, or a CDSN conference for that matter, where you try mm-hmm. to bring together varying perspectives so that you have a, a conversation about the issues and you don't have everybody on the same page. Whereas this this really is where you have the military industrial complex hang out where they're not looking to have folks ponder, well, maybe we shouldn't be in the arms export business. They're not going to invite Project Plowshares or the Rideau Institute or some of the scholars in our network to come there and say, hey, is this really a good idea to be selling labs to the Saudis? No, um, it's true. That is not what they're trying to do. It's a different kind of thing. And so uh, as you know, every year when this come, happens, you know, people say, hey, uh, well, I see you there at CANSEC. I'm like, I don't know how to get to CANSEC. I don't know where it is. I don't know what, it, you know, I, I don't how one goes there. Is, is, are there, you know, I just don't know how that process works. It's completely out of my imagination about random academics walking the floor now. Would it be fun to take a look at all the different technologies and talk to people? Absolutely. And, and there are some people who were walking the floor and sharing some of their experiences. That was pretty cool. So maybe I'll try to mm-hmm. sneak in next year. It's big business for sure. A- and there's no doubt that it, I, I think you're right, sort of suggesting that difference between convention or trade show and conference. I think it, it's just whether or not those protesters make any kind of impact whatsoever. I, I do think they do play a role. And at least we know that they've got some press so at least might raise a few questions in the public that maybe all of us aren't on the same page with regard to the military industrial complex. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that some folks refer to it as military industrial academic complex. Yes. Uh, so I get a little bit into that with our interview. I talked to Cesar Yarmilo, who was actually not talking about CANSEC, but he was, his organization, Project Plowshares, did react to Minister Anand's appearance at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute conference a few weeks ago, where she was standing in a talk and behind her were banners from various defense contractors. And so she, he was worried about the message that sends that she's speaking on behalf of these defense contractors. That's our next segment talking to Cesar. Aaron, I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, We really appreciate you guest hosting the podcast and we wish you well enjoying the summer out in Calgary. Thank you so much. I look forward to the next time. You have a great summer too. Today on Battle Rhythm, we're talking to Cesar Yarmillo, who is the executive director of Project Plowshares and also the Canada chair of Pugwash. 
we talked to him last year and we decided to bring him back because uh, he had an interesting perspective on how we talk about defense and security in Canada, who's in the conversation. And specifically, we're going to start today's conversation with a tweet about how the CGI had an event about after the Ukraine war, and it was sponsored by General Dynamics, which happens to manufacture weapons for all kinds of things. And right now we're big fans of weapons contractors for helping us arm the Ukrainians against the Russians who are engaged in humanitarian, well, war crimes, I think is pretty a simple way to put it. But at the same time, we're also having that friend of ours ship arms to Saudi Arabia, who's also engaged in war crimes. So I'm curious as to what motivated this tweet and how do you look at the dual nature of this endeavor of having defense industries in Canada, where they're supporting our ability to defend ourselves and, and, and defend our friends, but also supporting countries that use their weapons against civilians. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be with you again. And yeah, this is a fascinating topic for conversation. And I think you framed the issue well. There are you know, linkages between between General Dynamics and other arms manufacturers with the, with the current uh, ongoing situation uh, on Ukraine, but they're not new players at all in the in the, in the Canadian arms in the industry. And we've seen other examples where they've also been involved. And taken together, we, we see some contradictions in terms of Canadian defense and security policy, our approach to violations, international law, of international humanitarian law, violations to the rules-based international order that Canada purports to, to, to support so much and places a premium on uh, as part of its foreign policy. I think what initially got my attention was a picture on one of the tweets from the from the from the conference that we we're speaking of. And it was actually our Minister of Defense, Minister Anand, flanked by banners of not just General Dynamics, but General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, and a slew of other weapons manufacturers. And and that just visually, and aside from whatever the content of the of the conference was, and, and before even paying attention to, to the specific remarks of, of Mr. Anandam, which I did later, that image struck me visually. And, and some of my, my colleagues, we were like, okay, this sort of what story is being told here visually, sort of, sort of the government of Canada sponsored by, by Lockheed Martin. And, and, <laughs> And general dynamics. I mean, that's an overstatement, but the, it. I mean, something struck me as a bit odd about that uh, that close interaction. And without sounding too conspiratorial, you you and everyone following sort of policy issues, you know, as is familiar with the concept of, of the military-industrial complex and and the ways in which it penetrates the government politics and decisions and informs those decisions and beyond government, it penetrates in many ways the public discourse, academia, civil society. I mean, there's many tentacles to these uh, to this multi-billion dollar weapons industry. Now let's get to the topic of that conference. I mean, I, and, and not just at that conference, but in, in these days, we are seeing and, and hearing lots of lamentations about what we're witnessing in Ukraine. And personally, myself and institutionally as director of Project Cloudshare and chair of the, of the Canadian Power Group, I 100% sympathize with these lamentations and, and with the sympathy, with the outrage of the aggression of the of Russian military, with the illegal invasion of Ukrainian territory, with the, the, the way in which this undermines the, the rules-based international order, endangers civilians, raises the stakes of, of escalation, including potentially to nuclear. So, so that part is, uh, I think, beyond dispute. But we also feel that the credibility of current responses suffers 
when you look at the big picture and, and you see that there isn't really a pattern of consistency with which Canada and, and other Western states and, and the international community more generally respond to this crisis. So general dynamics now, you know, a player as, as our other arms manufacturers in, in supporting Ukraine and providing military assistance. So that's understood in the current context, but the, let's put a ping on that because there's something to be said about this uncritical enthusiasm for military assistance, however warranted it may seem in the, under the current circumstances. But there is that. That's understood under the, the current circumstances. But General Dynamics is also the parent company of General Dynamics Land Systems based in southwestern Ontario in London, which for more than five years has been providing weapons to Saudi Arabia with the authorization and blessing of the Canadian government, despite numerous red flags that have been raised in that regard. And there are parallels without, you know, stretching too much. There are clear parallels between the Yemen, the Yemen situation and the, the Ukrainian situation. I'll give you a, a couple of examples. First, in terms of, of the endangering civilians and targeting civilians and violations of international humanitarian law, of course, in Ukraine, there's more than, than sufficient reason for concern for outrage and for and that demand you know clear and compelling responses from the international community but in the Yemen case we have known for more than five years that the Saudi regime has engaged in systematic targeting targeting of civilians. This is not a peacenik position. This is not a Pausch's opinion. This is a well-known fact. The group of eminent, eminent experts are operating under the, the UN Human Rights Council, which is at the heart of the international rules-based international order, has denounced this pattern of systematic tar targeting of civilians. It has specifically named Canada as one of the countries that is contributing to the suffering in Yemen. And so so there is a contradiction there. Let's look at the response to the to the forced migrants that have resulted from each crisis. We have seen very well-deserved and welcome solidarity with Ukrainian refugees. And, and, and there's been a steady flow of forced migrants and refugees and internally displaced people arising from the conflict in Yemen. And I'll be the first to say, I'm a refugee myself, I'll be the first to say this is much needed and much welcome solidarity. I think the world needs to open their arms to, to, to Ukrainians that are fleeing from, from the, such a difficult situation. However, at the same time, before the Ukraine crisis erupted, we had a major flow of refugees whose implications continue to this day from the Middle East, from North Africa, from Yemen, for, uh, internally displaced people. And the message was clear. From Europe, it was like, we're full. You know, we want to do the right thing, but we're actually kind of full. They had coast guards literally pushing away the boats of migrants, drowning in the Mediterranean. My brother was helping them with doctors without borders. I mean, it was like a, a very dire humanitarian crisis, but the message was like, sorry, we're full. We're full. They were pushing this hot potato, the responsibility between them. And now with the Ukrainian crisis, apparently there is a way for the international community to, to provide safe haven to people fleeing. So it's, I don't mean to give, give like a provocative take on this, but there is a double standard. I mean, it's hard to deny that there is a double standard in the responses. And the last example in the approaches and the perhaps lack of coherence, the response to Putin to President Vladimir Putin versus a response to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of, uh, of Saudi Arabia. Vladimir Putin has earned, uh, I'm, I'm in full agreement, the rejection, the, the outrage of the international community, and I think the message has been 
loud and clear, you don't do that. You know, you you don't you don't commit this sort of aggression. You don't endanger civilians. You don't undermine the international order. I mean, and I think it's a very necessary response. Mohammed bin Salman, who's among many things, you know, a human rights violator, uh, the, the Saudi state responsible for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, a, resp- uh, a journalist at, uh, at the at the consulate in Istanbul, etc. He comes to America. He meets with Bill Gates with Jeff Bezos, with Bill Clinton, with the the Google guys, with Mark Zuckerberg. He gets the little red carpet rolled out for him. Canada, a country like Canada, despite clear and compelling case, and I'm I'm admittedly party to this conversation from publishers, from Amnesty, from different groups about the the risks and the the way in which the Mohammed bin Salman regime is facilitating human rights violations. Canada is determined, no matter what, to continue arming him. So once again, bringing it back to Ukraine, it's an it's a nuance point. It's a, you know, I, I want to emphasize that Ukraine is completely deserving of solidarity, assistance, and, and responses from the international community. But we see other cases in which the, the Canadian government is, is applying a completely different standard. And one conclusion is that the credibility of the responses in the long term suffers because there seems to be some, some cherry picking founded on double standards there. Well, there's a lot that you said there, and I'm trying to figure out where to start with. I guess we'll, we'll start with the last thing you, you mentioned, which is this double standard, that this undermines Canada's ability to, to achieve its goals, I guess. I mean, obviously, your stance on this is not just about the practicalities or the outcomes, but the values in that you want to see consistent values. But let's talk first about the effectiveness. So, you know, if you want to make an effects-based claim about this, this behavior before we talk about the principles. So do you see in your conversations around the world where Canada's foreign policies efforts are harmed by looking hypocritical on these things? So has, has that come up in the course of your conversation? Right. Yes. And that's a great question. But first, let me quickly address something you said about values which I brace and it's true. You know, I think there's a, there's a great sort of value element to being coherent in foreign policy. We feel there are concrete benefits, uh, practical benefits to this, but perhaps a misconception out there, and we've seen it in writing, you know, by some people, is in the case of Saudi Arabia, for example, is that appeals to Canada, for instance, to, to stop arming the uh, human rights violator, et cetera, are primarily or exclusively based on a value proposition and a wishy-washy sort of wishful thinking thing. I'm not saying you imply that, but but, but I've seen it elsewhere, a wishy-washy sort of wishful thinking thing. And I want to say categorically, it's based on the law, Mm -hmm. on the law, on very clear domestic and international legal commitments that Canada has, and that any reasonable observer would conclude of course, Saudi Arabia meets the threshold for denying arms export because it's an irredeemable arms con- uh, human rights violators. No doubt, we have the evidence. I mean, there, there's no doubt. And the clear proposition is, if there is a risk, you deny export uh, arms export. We'll, we'll die on that hill, basically. So, so yeah, it's not va- it's not just values. It's the law. It's compliance with the law, and it, it's it's embracing and supporting the the rules based international order that Canada very publicly says is a pillar of its foreign policy. So there is that. In terms of Canada standing in, in, in the world, yeah. I mean, I have seen that there is an erosion of the credibility of Canada as this traditional descriptions of as an honest broker, as a a constructive middle power. On matters of arms control, disarmament, and international security, I think one thing I've noticed recently is that this category of middle powers has become too broad. 
and there is no homogeneous middle powers. And I can point to at least one distinction. And there are the middle powers on the one hand, such as Ireland, such as Austria, such as Mexico, such as New Zealand, that are doing very progressive things in the international arena, pushing for on protection of civilians, on nuclear disarmament, on artificial intelligence and lethal autonomous weapon systems for very progressive things. And other middle powers, including members of military alliances, such as NATO, that are seen to have their interests, doctrines, and policies more closely aligned to the United States, to the, to the big military powers, and with the rest of, sort of, of the international community. It's instructive, I mentioned Ireland, it's instructive to say that one of the key flags of Canadian foreign policy last year was, was to gain a, a coveted seat in the Security Council, in the United Nations Security Council, and we ended up losing out to Ireland. And as much as uh, I think, you know, Canada was coming to this in good faith and, and trying to put on an incredible campaign for the Security Council. You know, observers are like, okay, Ireland is doing progressive things in the Security Council, counter, uh, offering a counterbalance to some of the more militarist narratives that we hear from other members. And who I wonder if Canada would be more closely like to, to, you know, where Canada would be standing today in those conversations. But in terms of the international perception, and not to turn this into a partisan thing, when the current government, the Liberals came, you know, very domestically was very familiar, but internationally it makes some waves this notion of change. You know, that there was going to be change from the conservatives, from the Stephen Harper government, etc. And the change, you know, there was some change on, on, on some policies, but on major foreign policy big ticket items, there has been very little change. We were selling weapons to Saudi Arabia under the conservatives. We're selling weapons to Saudi Arabia under uh, under the liberals. We were aligned on nuclear disarmament issues, for example, very closely aligned with the United States and uh, our NATO sort of nuclear deterrence narrative, etc. And not with the rest of the international community under Harper. Very similarly under the liberals, there were there were questions about Canada's sort of one-sidedness or, or almost unconditional support of Israel on, on Israel-Palestine matters under Harper. And there's a similar perception uh, on, under the current government. And so on these big ticket items, I mean, in a way, there's a, there has been continuation rather than change. And the international community does take notice, you know, of these things. I mentioned the example of, of the shameful, I would say, mentioned by the group of women and experts in Yemen last year of Canada as a direct contributor to the humanitarian catastrophe in Yemen, which the, perhaps Ukraine will surpass it. But uh, until recently, it was called the greatest humanitarian challenge of our time. And Canada is a direct contributor. I mean, that's, a, that's not a a particularly flattering position for a, for a country like Canada to be in. So yeah, I mean, short answer after a long answer. Yeah, I think the international community does take notice. And in the civil society sphere that sometimes we, with international partners that we have, there's like clear lamentation of Canadian positions on, on, a, on a range of arms control and disarmament and international security files. And I, th- I think you, you raise really important issues here. I guess let's talk about Ukraine specifically. Mm-hmm. And the last time we talked, we talked a lot about Yemen and talked about the right, Saudis. Right, right. And that's that's a, a pretty black and white case of mm-hmm. the Saudis engaged in, in gross human rights violations and our arming the Saudis to be right, a, right. a, a real challenge. How do you look at the behavior of the West in isolation, just focusing on the yeah. Ukrainian situation? We are arming the Ukrainians as much as we can. We have a lot more visibility about what the Russians are doing than what the Ukrainians are doing. Mm-hmm. And so I guess... What is your stance on on our current foreign policy towards this, right. this war? I mean, yeah, and so much to that 
question. And, and admittedly, you know, these are evolving prescriptions because of the crisis is ongoing and, you know, and, and even calculations change depending on the, on the very dynamics of the crisis. But these, there, there are some preliminary answers to this question, not just in terms of military assistance to Ukraine, but uh, there also there's great appetite to, to arm ourselves, you know, and to arm the West and, and to raise the level of military preparedness. And so there's also something to, uh, something to be said about that. On arming Ukraine, Let's start there. On Armenia, Ukraine, I'm providing military assistance. And there seems to be increased appetite for doing so, not just from Canada, but from the West, generally speaking. Sometimes we find ourselves in the in peculiar or lonesome position to try to temper the enthusiasm there. You know, and, and even in context, as, as you well know, in the Canadian Defense, uh, Defense and Security Network, that the value, diversity of views and membership, etc., I'm aware that there are different views on this. So while we understand the need for providing concrete assistance uh, to Ukraine, including military, I think this, you know, th th should not be a blank check, open-ended attitude, anything goes in terms of military assistance to Ukraine. The sympathy for the cause, understandable, and, and which I share, let me add that as well, you know, is an important factor. Another important factor is commitment to the law, to international law, to risk assessments, to long-term thinking, to, to long-term planning. And we need to balance that. And, and this is a conversation that has become understandably very politicized. But from a group like Project Clausius, we try to come at, uh, at it from a dispassionate perspective. So linking it to military assistance, you know, arms exporting countries, uh, whether in the form of, of uh, actual commercial contracts or, or in the form of military aid, especially those who are party to the arms, international arms trade treaty, such as Canada, have very concrete legal obligations about considering the end use, about considering the end user, about assessing for risk, that for the risk that there might be diversion of weapons, that they might be misused, that they might be employed in human rights abuses, that they may land in the wrong hands, unauthorized use or users, etc. And there is, there's conversations in this very special you know, regime about post-export controls, post-export verification. That's a reality. That's a fact. These are obligations that states have. Another fact is that there is great appetite and, and, and empathy and so solidarity for the Ukrainian cause and a desire, once again, understandable to do all we can, the West, to, to help them out. But it's not one or the other, you know, as with many things in life and policies, in the nuances, it's in the gray areas. So, so how do you balance these two things? And, and so, so we are sometimes in the position to remind folks, hey, there's no exemptions in the Arms Trade Treaty for, for sympathy or for solidarity. You know, there's, I think there's a way to assist, including militarily, but let's not like completely forget that norms and the law, international law, are there for a reason. Not just for easy situations, but indeed as well for, for complex situations. So we must ask questions, you know, okay, has any thought been given? We're not saying a categorical don't assist. Has any thought and what level of thought been given to the end use of these weapons, to the end user? President Zelensky King has been openly arming civilians, you know? How does this fit in? Are, the, are these domestic weapons that they had or, or, or is there a risk that weapons transfer there from the West are being uh, landing in the, in the hands of civilians? Uh, what are the implications I, I guess what I'd have to ask is, given that the Russians are engaged in gross humanitarian abuses, and given the timeliness of this stuff, how do we have these long-term conversations about the end use of these weapon systems, of the legalities of this, when, you know, particularly last month and the month before that, time was, you know, was so crucial that... that the time was of the essence. Time was of the essence. They needed yeah. to get the, the equipment to the Ukrainians so that way they could stave off defeat. And right. now that we know more and more about how the Russians are treating 
the Ukrainians in the territory they capture, rape, the forced deportation, you know, stuff that we have, you know, that looks Stalin-esque in terms of what they're doing. I, I guess to me, I'm wondering, what, where have we violated international law in this? Or is it just that you want a clear conversation about the international legal right. implications because yeah. it seems to me that even arming civilians in Ukraine, for instance, I don't know, how, I, I don't know the international law of it, but you know they're creating citizen militias to to forestall a, a Russian victory. Is that does that violate international law? What what has it right. done really crosses any lines of international law? Right. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, you know, these <laughs> in other cases we might worry. Okay, if we give these people these arms, they're going to sell them someplace else, and that's really where the the end use question really comes in. Of either it's they're sold elsewhere or they're used to target civilians. But in this case, the Ukrainians really don't have that much of a capability to target civilians. Now, they right, may be right. arming civilians, but uh, is that really a problem? And time is of the essence. And, and I just want to clarify, I'm not making like a clear indictment of, of violation, nor saying a categorical no to military assistance. And, and I understand the haste that all the things I'm saying. It's a question. This is a time to assess these matters. Okay, what precedent will be set? Is it this? Maybe an oversimplification that in times of armed conflict, when there's you know military assistance considerations involved, the law is suspended. You know, obligations under international law are suspended, overlooked, expedited. I mean, I don't know, and I, I'm not purporting to have a clean answer. But I'm just saying this is a caution. I mean, and and the fact that because we haven't had that conversation, you know, if if there is no consensus that the law suspended in cases of armed conflict and i don't think that's necessarily the answer no. then the fault is we assume that states comply with their obligations etc and gang it's not black and white it's not a, a denial of military assistance is okay are we are we paying attention to these factors does does the benefit outweigh the risk and the answer might be yes and that's fine is this analysis being had in a, in a deliberate manner? Yes. You know, uh, there's yeah. a benefit away there is because of these reasons. Yes, there might be excessive accumulations of weapons or an entrenched insurgency for years to come or that. But other, if we don't do it now, I don't know what the analysis is and, and how that, that, that fits with, with our domestic interna and international legal commitments. So that it, when you see in the news and the, uh, in the Global Mail and CBC and the announcement of military aid, that, you know, I think their, their policy community at least should be informed of the Canadian policy. Okay, was this an expedited process? Because the law says there must be a risk assessment. Normally, it takes a while. Was there an expedited process? If so, okay, maybe it, there are valid reasons for such an expedited process. And then we understand the context, etc. But since it's so recent, you know, we just don't know. So, so what we're saying is, okay, it's not a no, completely open-ended, let's arm them however we can. Let's see. We're setting a precedent here. There are laws that are applicable. How does it all fit in? Without denying the, the, the Russian atrocities and, 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 and the, it, the real impact that arming one side or withholding arms has on the broader calculus and the, and, and the direction of the conflict. And I guess to me, this would be all be much easier if we had confidence about the process. I mean, one of the things I knew because I lived in the D.C. interagency process was mm -hmm. I knew that everything got vetted by lawyers at every step along the way. And so I guess if we understood the Canadian policy process and knew that there were lawyers being consulted every step along the way of these these arms shipments, right? Would that would that do much to assuage you of your concerns? I mean, the Canada would still end up having lawyers say giving thumbs up to things that ultimately are are problematic. But if you yeah. if you knew more about the process that in in these kinds of arms shipments that there's always lawyers who are consulting the law and and they're they're right. checking the boxes and making sure that the procedures are followed, 
would that deal, you know, would that help you with all you know, the qualms you're feeling about that specific piece of it? Not the, yeah. not the larger double standard thing, but the, right, the, the right. Increase. It would, it would uh, to some extent. Now, I presume, and you know, the reality, part of these very clear norms, etc., you know, the, the film and look at Saudi. These decisions don't seem to be purely technical, put it that way. You know, we know there's a political component, alliances, strategic or, or otherwise. So I presume that, you know, government lawyers, as you said, will eventually give the thumbs up. But yeah, that, that sort of assurance does go uh, some way. But also, I'm not assuming that the government would know exactly how to proceed. And that's why you refer to precedent setting. I mean, this is a very peculiar situation. The arms trade treaty itself is relatively recent, just six or seven years old. And, and the Ukraine thing just, you know, a big picture, it started yesterday. So, you know, states are reacting in real time. So I think it uh, shouldn't be controversial to say, okay, uh, the haste of it all, let's not lose sight of longer term implications, compliance with the law and those things. It's just a general caution. And I think the government could indeed provide some assurances to say, okay, it's an exp expedited process, but it's, it's not like there's no process. You know, it's not like there's no accounting for mm. what's going on, you know, and, and that would help. And also, aside from compliance with the law, I think the policy community more generally in Canada, including, including the groups you're part of, I think a healthy conversation about these uh, cost-benefit factors, uh, insurgency long-term, uh, you know, the timeliness of, of telling the Russian attacks uh, versus, you know, all of these factors. I think it's a big, you know, and it could inform subsequent similar situations, you know, in, in terms of the best approach to take. Well, the, the funny thing about that is we started off this conversation when you talked about the military-industrial complex. Folks might look at us and think about military-industrial-academic complex. Right. Because the CDSN gets money from DD. Right. We don't get money from right. defense contractors, although if any defense contractors are listening, we seriously think about taking your money as long as right. you're criticizing uh, some of the choices that are made. But we do take money from D&D. And so that puts us in this this circle. And, you know, we have banners just like the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, who happens to be a partner of the CDSN. Now, we don't have banners that list defense contractors because we don't get money from defense contractors, but we do get money from defense. Our partners get money from defense contractors. So we're in the web. And so people can look at this conversation and ponder ponder your partnership with the CDSN right. and how this stuff kind of works. And I think entities vary in, in how they weigh these trade-offs. And right. I think Project Plowshares in our partnership has partnered with us, but has not partnered with D&D. You've been very careful about that over the past several years and how we, you know, certain grants we apply for, you guys sign on to and, and, and join us with, you know, sure, but you don't when it comes to D&D &D, and, and that's sort of how you navigate this. And you know that not everything we do at CDSN is, is stuff that you'll endorse because right. our mandate is not exactly the same as your mandate. We care about the global, yeah, but that's, you know, the that's fine. international order, but how we see these contradictions, sometimes I don't see them the same way that you do. One of the founding ideas of the CDSN was to have a theme looking at security issues and asking whether we are causing security or whether we're causing insecurity. And that's why we like to have you on because you raise that question of, of are we doing more good than bad? And I think when it comes to arming the Saudis, I think the argument's pretty obvious. This is a very interesting question. And and I don't know if you, I don't know, this might be edited eventually out, but I will say in two seconds, we do get, have gotten DMD funding through the Mines program. 
So just in case you want to re-record that <laughs> intro. This is, I mean, this is a very interesting question. And first, and I say this with all sincerity, I think one of the strengths of the Canadian Defense and Security Network is that it, it has a diversity of voices, including us. And we're very grateful to, to be part of the conversation and very aware that there are other members that have different views. And I think that's fine. And not just fine. I think that's welcome. I think that's where the truth lies in the middle of all, all these di di divergent positions who we, we very much value and in fact expect that there will be a diversity of, uh, of voices. We, we have received, for example, funding from, uh, from, from the Department of National Defense through, through the, their MINDS program. And this is an interesting conversation we do not take from, uh, from defense contractors. And we've had uh, conversations and, and I can tell you, I know there's skepticism around this. When we have received from DND, we deliver projects to the best of our ability, but we don't feel in any way beholden mm -hmm. to any interest or anything and, and whatever the cost may be, we do the work that we feel needs to be done. Now, and not to play the victim or seem self-righteous so much, but in terms of the security conversation in Canada, we do feel sometimes we're uh, one of few voices. Mm -hmm. countering a bit of, you know, enthusiasm for militarism, to use that term, or for increasing our military preparedness, etc. In the context of Ukraine, we have seen a lot of that. A lot of, you know, from academic circles, from, from pundits, from industry, etc. You know, if not now, then when? You know, this is the time. If ever it was justified to ramp up our military preparedness, it's now not just Canada, but NATO. And, and Putin is, you know, uh, an autocrat and, and you cannot appease autocrats. You know, you, you respond with force. You cannot enable bullies and all of this nar narrative. And we do feel, once again, without, you know, making too much of it, we're like, okay, it's, it's even sometimes getting too borderline controversial mm -hmm. to even try to temper that enthusiasm that has become a bit of a mantra. You know, mm -hmm. this is it. A global mail editorials. This is the time to arm Ukraine. This is the time to arm ourselves, etc. So a few, a few qualifications there. First, the uninformed observer, consumer of news or, or news articles or, or Twitter feeds, etc. If they didn't know any better, they might have the impression that Canada and or NATO are catching up to Russia right now in terms of military spending in, in some way. And, and nothing could be farther from the truth. NATO outspends Russia by 15 or 16 times. Put another way, Russia's and, and I did the exercise recently at a public event. I quizzed them. I said, okay, guess the percentage of Russia's military spending relative to NATO. And I gave a few options, 300%, 500%, 150%. The answer is closer to between 5 and 6%. Russia relative to NATO. NATO's spending, again, there's this impression we're catching up urgently. Urgently, we're catching up. NATO, by 2021 figures, $1.17 trillion to 60-something billion, billion by Russia. There's also the impression that Canada in particular is, is, you know, is falling behind and there's no military preparedness. NATO is armed to the teeth. Canada is consistently, and, and Ernie Regeer, the fund, founder of Project Plowshares, whom I respect very much, has made this case very compellingly. Canada is consistently in the top 10 global military spenders. Canada is consistently in the top 20% of, of, of NATO military spenders. And let's leave nuclear weapons and that, the related risk aside in terms of conventional preparedness and conventional military weaponry. It's to the teeth armed. And this is where I, get, I say, this is not a peacenik thing to say. This is Christmas day for the military industrial complex. <laughs> they're celebrating this Ukraine. They're celebrating their military contract. But again, if you didn't know the facts behind, you get the impression that you we're playing some sort of catch-up game when the norm is 
overt militarism on both sides, on the, on, on the NATO side and on the Russian side, who are no saints and I intend I will not be apologetic for, for their military tendencies at all. But the spending, the facts and the figures, you know, I think an informed debate must recognize NATO is already, has already spent tremendously on military spending. In terms of criticisms to Canada, we hear, but we haven't reached 2% because this talking point forever of NATO <laughs> is that they take this arbitrary economic measure that has nothing to do with threat perceptions at all, at all. It's a purely economic measure, you know, a percentage of gross domestic product. And then Canada is, uh, is not complying, not pulling its weight because we're not there. Even if in absolute terms, we're, we're, we're in the top 10% globally, even if in absolute terms, we're among the top NATO military spenders. But say, you know, BlackBerry, we had a, a few, you know, new major industries in Canada all of a sudden. So that year we have to increase military spending, you know, to account for that economic growth that is unrelated to threats. It's just an arbitrary measure. And it's such a mantra that is repeated almost uncritically. Let's spend it. Well, how do we respond? Increase, 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 increase military spending. So I understand the context under which the, the sentiments are, are, are coming. I, I'm not saying Canada should not be prepared for the threats of the, of the 20, 21st century and beyond. But the package of what security means has to be broadened. It cannot be only military spending for military contractors. What about spending in diplomacy? What, what about spending in, in supporting multilateral institutions? What about engaging really in good faith in multilateral disarmament projects? Processes. What about trying to persuade our, our, our allies within NATO to decrease the role of nuclear weapons in, in, the, in their military doctrines? What about talking to Russia? Talking to Russia because that is the purpose of diplomacy. And this recent framing of, of diplomatic engagement as if it were some sort of reward when it is 10 times when you need to engage to avoid misunderstandings and miscommunications and all of a sudden talk of shunning Russia from the Arctic Council, shunning Russia from the International mm -hmm. Space Station, shunning Russia. Like, hey, the answer is greater in integration, greater interdependence, not, not the opposite. And in a way, this rush to, to, to military spending in the, in, in the face of Ukraine, I feel that at the end of the day, I fear that the international community may end up drawing exactly the wrong conclusions from this pivotal geopolitical moment that will create the conditions whereby further increased military spending will seem justifiable in the near future because that will increase the threat levels, the threat perceptions on both sides. And soon enough, we'll hear the, the pundits saying, actually, we need more military spending. And that type of thinking is what, in a way, contributed to, the, to, to this uh, stalemate, you know, an adversarial, overly militarized relationship for decades results in an adversarial overly militarized outcome you know so the dot connecting abilities of the international community also should should take this into account you know to what extent this this arms tracing tends to be a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy so all with nuance you know i'm not saying no to military preparedness i think it's, it's the group thing that worries me a little bit mm -hmm. you know have people not seen the red mm -hmm. orwell on the apocalyptic movies you know everybody in chorus saying the same things uh, aligned with the government thinking i'm like hey we need a bit of a counterbalance to these voices well i, I hope that project plowshares participates as much as it can in the forthcoming defense review because i think that minister of defense anita anand needs to hear your voice pushing back against the other voices as we rethink what is the role of the military what is the role of of dnd in the future, there are a lot of conflicting lessons to draw from the Russia situation. I myself have become more skeptical about how interdependence can lead to, to good stuff because asymmetric independence or weaponized 
interdependence right. can be quite problematic. I, I, you know, the Germans made a lot of decisions based on having interdependence with the Russians and getting leverage and, and convincing the Russians that the way ahead was through integration. And it turns out that it just created German vulnerability. Uh, Absolutely, and it, and it didn't really change Putin's mind on this. And and that, that's one reality, one interesting. This is a bit of a tangent, but one interesting realization. It's not new, but it's becoming very much apparent of sanctions as a tool, you mm -hmm. know, as one method in the toolbox, is that they're often causing self-inflicted pain, like to impose yeah. them will, will cause pain on you, on you, on your well, economy. That's the, only, that's the and, only time that they matter is if they cause yourself pain. If, if, if they don't cause you pain, then they're probably not going to cause pain to the other side. Right, uh, right. And, uh, and they're a function of that interdependence that right. you're talking about. And I, yeah, I fully agree that, yeah, that there is something to be said there. One of these days we'll have to talk about China, but that's another topic entirely, because I think a lot right. of the lessons from Ukraine and Russia, we need to think about how we're going to deal with China and Taiwan and Uyghurs and, and all the rest of it. But we'll talk about that next time because- uh, uh, No shortage of topics. No shortage of topics, no shortage of contradictions. <laughs> No shortage of uh, difficult ways to navigate international relations where you want to Absolutely. follow the rules based. And we order. don't, we don't. I and I say also with honesty, we don't purport to have the final word on any of these matter. But you know, we we do value the, the diversity of views, and and uh, I think that uh, in exchanging such views, perhaps a creative, you know, a position arises or, or something like that. But we, yeah, we we just feel that when it's all one view, it's you know, it's a, it's a bit of a worrisome situation. Well, and. and and we really appreciate that because you, you and your organization have provided uh, the CDSM with all kinds of opportunities and perspectives. We've had students who've done internships with you guys. You, Bronca helped at our summer institute last year for our panel on understanding security. And so we really appreciate everything you've done for us. And thank you for joining us about rhythm today, Cesar. Okay, look forward to the next opportunity. On this week's R&R segment, I have three recommendations based on things that seem old and some that are old. The first one is a TV series that closed about 10 years ago now, Breaking Bad, which was a fantastic TV show. And I got a chance to rewatch it because I was visiting my mother and we were looking for something to watch on TV and I saw Breaking Bad. And I felt compelled to try to introduce her to it. And now she's addicted after two episodes. I know it gets better from there. So Breaking Bad, just a heap of fun and drama. One of the best TV shows of all time. The second is Operation Mincemeat. It's based on the book that I think I recommended uh, last year about an intelligence operation to deceive the Germans about where the next major military operation would be. The focus of all attention was either in Sicily or Greece, and we were trying to tell the Germans we were going to invade Greece when we were planning on invading Sicily. And so it's about that intelligence operation about how do you get the Germans to think you're attacking one place and not another? And it involves placing a corpse with documents in the seas off of Spain. And the TV, the movie was actually pretty good. I think the book was better, but the, the movie was good. It had a little Hollywoodization of some of the story, but the actors were all quite good and compelling. And uh, so Operation Mincemeat, which I believe is on Netflix. And then the third is the predictable recommendation of Obi-Wan Kenobi of the Star Wars story. Uh, this takes place in between Revenge of the Sith and Star Wars, A New Hope, charts what Obi-Wan is up to when he's supposed to be hanging out, watching over Luke in the deserts of Tatooine. And it gets pretty interesting. And Hugh McGregor is terrific in the role. And they've cast some of these other roles that we haven't seen before in, in neat ways. And it's just, just 
terrific. The Obi-Wan is experiencing post-traumatic stress from the fact that he ended up having to battle his brother, Anakin Skywalker, at the end of Revenge of the Sith, and his faith in the Jedi has been broken by their massive failure to prevent the rise of the Emperor. So it's really, really well done. Uh, it's only six episodes, already halfway through, but it's easy to catch up, and I recommend it quite highly. So those are my recommendations for this week. I hope you get to enjoy the summer. The weather's been good out in Ottawa, except for one notable storm that went through and took away all of our power for a while. Anyway, be well and good luck. Mm -hmm.